First Peter chapter three, verses thirteen through twenty-two. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. We are going to spend some time talking about this passage that Maggie just read for us as we continue through our series through the book of First Peter. But before I get to that, a couple of things, news and notes for you to know about. Uh, first off, tonight... Um, it doesn't always smell this good in this room. So that should be an indication that we are having a meal tonight. So we're having our Thanksgiving meal together right after the service. So we have some ham that we're providing for the main course. And then many of you have brought desserts and sides and drinks and things. And so as soon as the service is over, we will tear down this far section on my left and on your right. We will roll out some round tables and we will transition this room into a place where we can eat a meal together. So uh, you have that to look forward to after the service. As you do, um, we are going to have Morgan. Morgan is going to be coming around and she is going to be passing out an invitation to all the ladies to our women's Christmas gathering. Uh, Morgan is working together with the church staff to make this event happen and it is an opportunity for our two congregations, one in North Liberty, one here downtown, for the ladies to come together, to worship together, to spend time together, to enjoy some good food together. So she will be coming around handing you some invites. You can also check out our Advent resources and our parent resources at the back for kids as you're waiting in line and milling around. Um, Also want to remind you or tell you for the first time, if you weren't here last week, that we are doing a service project right after the service next week week. So we are going to be able to package some one-pot meals. We're going to transition the room after the service next week to uh, pack some meals. We're doing this in coordination with Thrivent Finances and Alex Carr, who attends here downtown. And um, we are going to package meals right after the service. And the idea is if we can have 52 people stick around for an hour after the service next Sunday, we can package 10,000 meals. That's a lot of food, and that makes a big difference. And so if you can uh, make it to that, we would like you to go ahead and sign up so that uh, we can plan accordingly, so we can have all the supplies that we need. And you can scan that QR code right there from where you're sitting right now. It sends you to a registration page where you send them an email and say, hey, I'm coming, and we'll count on you after the service next week to be a part of that very tangible way 
to serve our community. Some of them will stay here in the corridor area. Some will go to Florida. Some may end up overseas, but a great practical way to serve at this time of year. As we jump into our scripture for tonight, we see this phrase of being in trouble or being troubled or being afraid. This is something that Peter has mentioned in other places in the passage, but tonight he's really going to jump into the meat of what does it look like to suffer well and what does it look like to walk with a living hope when we are troubled. The fact of the matter is that this world can be a troubling place. This world can be a troubling place for all of us. Whether it is external things that are taking place that are troubling us, whether it's things at a macro view that are happening in our world or things on a micro level, things happening in our everyday life, there are many things that happen in our world that can trouble us. Maybe it is the collective anxiety that's come from everything that's happened with COVID and otherwise in our world over the last few years. Maybe it is the political climate we find ourselves in or people's reaction to the political climate that we find ourselves in. Maybe you see, as you look around, uh, the world not valuing the things of God. Maybe you uh, look around and there's just external pressures that are troubling you. Or maybe... The things that are troubling you are internal things. You're troubled because of the suffering that you have endured in the past or the suffering that you are enduring right here, right now. Maybe it's even anticipating suffering and trouble that's coming with the season of more darkness and more cold weather and more time inside or time with extended family that may be stressing you out. There are internal things that can trouble us. Our own sin troubles us. When we see what our hands are capable of, what our minds are capable of, what our lips are capable of, we can be troubled. Or maybe you're just troubled because of the circumstances you find yourself in. Maybe it's budget cuts at work or at the university. Maybe it's trouble in your immediate or extended family. Maybe it's financial trouble or just unknowns for the future or relationships that are difficult. There is no shortage of things that can trouble us in this world. As we've been looking at 1 Peter, we find our thesis for the whole book when Peter talks about how we can have a living hope. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the death of Jesus on our behalf, because of the reality of where Jesus sits today, we can have a living hope and we can rejoice right here, right now. And tonight, Peter is going to show us that even when you are troubled, you can have a living hope. So that's what we're going to try to answer tonight. How can we have a living hope in times of trouble? Before we go any further, I'd like us to pray. I'd like us to pray that the Spirit speaks. I'd like you to pray for me, as I often ask for. Uh, The last two weeks, we had the marriage passages. There's a certain amount of humility and fear and trepidation as a pastor as you go preaching on the marriage uh, sermons. It felt like there were landmines everywhere that I didn't want to step on, and I didn't want to mischaracterize what Scripture was saying. This passage tonight... It's humbling for me and should be for all of us in a different way. 
This passage tonight is very clearly going to tell us what Jesus has done and where Jesus sits today. And I pray that the Spirit would speak. Would you pray with me and for me? Father, we ask you to speak. We believe that you have a word to speak to us tonight. And God, we need to hear it. Each of us has trouble. Even Jesus, you said today, has enough trouble of its own. God, we need help for our trouble. We need help for our sin and suffering. We need trouble or we need help through our trouble, whether it's big or small, whether it's external or internal whether it's from the past, the present, whether it's anticipated in the future, we need your help. Father, would you help me to speak what would only make the gospel incredibly clear, the good news, God, in a world full of bad news. I pray that it would be clear tonight. I pray that we would hear from you very clearly and that your word would do its work that you intend for it to do tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So instead of putting... Up on the screen, I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me, either in your uh, Bible app, online, paper copy, whatever it may be. Uh, Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll take a look at each of the verses here. We'll start in verse 13. Look with me at verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So first, the first question that we need to ask is, what harm does Peter have in mind? He says, now who is there to harm you? When he's speaking of harm, this could be a number of different kinds of harm. And when we look at the original language in which it was written, Greek, it is not totally helpful. The word for harm here can mean basically every kind of harm. There's not a lot of nuance to this version of the word harm. So we have to look for other context clues of what kind of harm he and potentially the hearers of this letter, the readers of this letter, the exiles that he's writing to, what might they be troubled by and what may they be afraid of harming them? Well, it could be a number of different things, but I think based on what the rest of the letter is saying, they are most likely, when they read harm, thinking of marginalization and slander against them. Marginalization and slander. How do I know marginalization? Because he has said, as he addresses the letter, he says to the elect exiles. So to the believers, those that Christ has died for, who are exiles, meaning they don't live in the same place that they were originally born. So they're marginalized in society. They're not where they're originally from. And we've talked about some of the complexities that that could bring to their life. So that's marginalization. And then where do we get slander? How can we know that they're fearing slander? We can look throughout the book of First Peter to name a few in chapter 2, verse 12 and 15, in chapter 3, verses 9, 14, and 16, and in chapter 4, verse 14, he talks about when they are slandered, when someone says something against them for what they believe. We can take by context that this is primarily what he is talking about when he says, can any harm come to you? Words are harmful, 
slander is harmful. And so he is telling them, you may be troubled by this. And in just a moment, we'll look at the rhetorical nature of this question. But then he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, this part, there's no ambiguity in. Here he means physical harm. So he is saying, whether you are troubled by the things currently happening to you, or if in the future you are physically harmed, you don't have to be troubled and anxious by that reality. Through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter includes this because the people that are reading this letter and all Christians in the first century are about to face something much worse than slander. Most commentaries will say and tell you, and I agree with this, that this letter was probably written between the years 63 and 65 AD. If that is the case, if we look at the historical timeline, in four years, Nero is going to burn down the temple in Jerusalem, and the Jews are going to think he's the Antichrist. In the year 81, Caesar is going to make a decree that you must burn incense to him in an act of religious worship, and the Christians are going to have to decide if they're going to say Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. In the year 96 is when the Roman Empire starts feeding Christians to the lions. So as we read this in context, we can say that they are facing harm through marginalization and slander, but even if they face what they are actually about to face, and oh, by the way, Peter was martyred for the things that he wrote and preached and believed and did. They are told, even if you should suffer bodily, because of your righteousness, you will be blessed, have no fear, nor be troubled. We see here, by nature of it being a question in verse 13, that Peter's asking a rhetorical question. He's saying, no one can actually harm you, no matter what. Even if they're slandering you, even if they're taking your very body, they can't actually harm you, so you don't need to be slandered. And then he tells them, have no fear, have no trouble. So how? How? In our trouble, in our fear, in threats against our very body, can we not be troubled and have no anxiety and trust in the Lord? Well, he gives us two clues here by saying, that if we suffer by being zealous for what is good and if we suffer for righteousness sake. So the first thing that Peter is telling us is we don't have to fear and the way that we don't fear is making sure that we are living lives of righteousness and that we're zealous for what is good. We are living for the things of God. If we are living for the things of God and suffering because of it, we don't need to fear. That's what he's getting at in these first two verses. In chapter 4, verse 17, which we'll take a look at in two weeks, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. An implication of that sentence is that you will suffer. The question is, will you do so because of righteousness or through righteousness? Or will it be through following your own flesh and desires? So how do we remain zealous for what is good and live righteous life, lives amongst our trouble? As we're troubled. Let's continue on in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you 
for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He is saying here a couple of things. First, you are not in control of your situation or the time in which you live. They are not in control of the fact that they are being slandered. They're not in control of the fact that they're being marginalized. They're not in control of what will happen to their bodies in the coming years and decades. They may be in a time of trouble. So he tells them there's one thing that you are in control of, and that's what they value in their heart. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is the thing that he is telling them to do. This is the imperative that he is telling them, you must do this. You may face trouble, you may face harm, you may face slander and marginalization, but honor Christ Jesus as Lord in your heart. Honor him as holy. Not only does he tell us this, but he has been telling us and he will tell us how to go about doing this. Put together, I took all of 1 Peter and I copied and pasted it over to a document and I did a word search for think, mind, and heart. Think, mind, and heart. Got to do some Bible uh, study, truly Bible study, some Bible nerding, if you want to put in a verb. Here are the verses that came up when, we're talk, when we talk about the mind, the heart, and what we're thinking about. Chapter 1, verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure Heart 2.19, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, speaking of Jesus. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Chapter 3, verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. 3, eight. finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 4.7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 4.19, therefore, let, us, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter has been, and he will, in this book, tell us what it means to honor Christ Jesus as Lord and as holy. He's talking about what they hide in their hearts and what they think about, what they set their hope fully on. What Peter is telling us in this section of scripture is set your hope on and set your mind on and stake your life on Jesus. And then no matter what happens in your circumstances, you don't have to be troubled because you've staked your very life on the most important thing. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. If you've grown up in the church like I have, you have heard this verse a time or 12. This is a verse that you hear often and is often in the context of learning apologetics. 
learning to defend the faith, learning the difference between maybe a secular worldview and a Christian worldview or other world religions. And often this verse is kind of a foundational verse for learning about apologetics. And I'm not saying that that is inappropriate or wrong, but it's not primary actually to this context. Look at what's happening in these people's lives. They're being marginalized. They're being slandered. Their very lives are about to be at stake if they're not already. And he's saying, be ready to give an account for the hope that you have. That hope is not just a free exchange of ideas at a Starbucks. This is often as they are on trial or as their flesh is being burnt at the stake that they are giving an account for the hope that they have. And history, especially in the first century, is just full of stories of people giving their very lives and proclaiming to the very end Christ Jesus as Lord and as holy. I want to describe and give you a word picture for this very deep idea with something every day. What Peter is talking about is when we are most challenged and when we are most troubled, it shows what is hidden in our heart already. Peter is telling them, be ready to give an account for the hope that you have by hiding certain things in your heart, by setting your hope fully on certain things. And when you are challenged, when you are troubled, you will see what you have set your heart on. It's kind of like this. A dishwashing sponge. This dishwashing sponge has been around a little while. Can you smell what this smells like right now as I put it up here? This is one of the most horrendous smells in the entire world. When you handle a sponge that is way past its prime and you can smell it on your hands even after you wash them, that's what I want you to picture right now. That's because a sponge soaks up everything. And you don't use a sponge when something is a little bit dirty. You use a sponge to really work on something and get some greasy, nasty stuff out of a pan or out of the sink. Have you ever cooked something on a pan and you realize you used the wrong pan or you didn't grease the pan and now the pan is just fried That's what you use a sponge for. A sponge soaks up all kinds of nasty, nasty things. So if you run water through it, you touch it, you press it down, gross stuff is going to come out, right? I'll leave you with another image so you're not stuck there. Oh, look at that. Nice, clean sponge. Some of you just took a deep, oh, it feels so much better. You can also probably smell this. This is a great smell, a pure smell. If you were to run water through it or if you were to push these down, nothing would come out or clean water would come out if you soaked up water. What is inside of a sponge, what has been soaking up, what it has been dwelling on, what has been hiding in it, when it is pressed, when it is troubled, those things spill out. That's what Peter is saying, hide Christ and what he has done in your mind and heart. So when you are troubled, peace comes out and proclaiming of Jesus' name. 
and proclaiming of Jesus Christ and him crucified, him victorious, him seated at the right hand of the Father is what comes out of your life. There is also a theme in 1 Peter of us standing for righteousness and in the end our enemies being put to shame and them actually receiving the trouble. In chapter 2, verse 15, it says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Chapter 3, verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears, his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter is once again telling us that our righteousness attracts the attention of God. Verse 18 Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I'm going to read that again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Friends, this is the gospel. This is our living hope. This is what Christ suffered on our behalf. This is what Christ was troubled with. This is how Christ was reviled. This is how he suffered in the flesh and overcame in the spirit so that we might be the righteousness of God. This right here is the great exchange. Our unrighteousness put on Christ on the cross and in return we receive his righteousness, the righteousness that we could never attain on our own. It is us taking our nasty, gross sponge and training it in for something that has been made new and clean. This is the gospel. This is what our lives are about. This is our living Hope. This is the good news that we believe and know and share with others. This is what helps us in our time of trouble. We'll return to that in just a moment. Look with me at verses 19 through 22. 19 through 22. In which he, meaning Christ, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What is going on here. There is some strange stuff in this passage. We're going to spend five minutes talking about it for two reasons. We need to solve this whole, or at least talk about this whole Christ proclaiming to the spirits in prison. We're going to talk about this for two reasons. The first one is, it has to stand out to you as you're reading through this. You're like, what, what now? Excuse me? And you're not alone. Believers and theologians and commentators throughout church history have read this passage and said, come again? I believe that it was Martin Luther said that the passage is so abstract, I am giving up on it. Martin Luther, if he gave up, we may not come to a conclusion here in the next five minutes. 
So it stands out. But the second reason is no matter what the passage means, the punchline's the same. And it's important for us tonight to know what Peter is getting at. So verse 19, what the heck is going on here? For lack of a more sophisticated term, what the heck is going on here? I wish that the Greek and the grammar of the sentence solved all of our problems. It does not. It makes it more confusing. There are three views historically, both ancient, all the way back in church history, uh, up until today. There are three main schools of thought on what it means that Christ preached to the spirits who are now in prison. Theory number one, Christ preached through Noah the message of repentance to the people of Noah's day in Genesis. So the spirit of Christ spoke a message of repentance through Noah in his day. And he, like all the other prophets in the Old Testament, if they spoke a prophecy, if they spoke a word of repentance, the spirit of Christ led them to do so. That's theory number one. Theory number two. Christ, after his death, preached to angelic beings, most likely the fallen angels that are described in Genesis chapter 6. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church and in the Apostles' Creed, it states, Christ descended into hell and preached to the spirits who were in prison before he rose from the dead. So that is kind of a Catholic version of that understanding. That in between Christ's death and resurrection, he was actually preaching in hell to spirits that were in prison. That's theory number two. Theory number three, this is describing metaphorically what Christ's death and resurrection accomplishes for all those who are lost. Three understandings. The first one makes the most sense in the grammar and in the context. The second one is believed by the historical church, the Apostles' Creed, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, Jude, 2 Peter, and the book of Enoch. It sounds the weirdest, but actually has the most scriptural and historical backing. The third one sounds most correct when we think about other biblical theology and doesn't sound as weird or different to us as the other two. I think that some of these understandings can probably be combined to understand. I think Peter was probably clear what he meant. I think the readers probably understood what he was getting across, but 2,000 years later, we're not quite sure what he was getting at. But here's why it kind of doesn't matter. Peter's point is that Jesus wins. That we will be vindicated Even when we suffer at the hands of unrighteousness, we will be vindicated in the end by Jesus. We will be vindicated. The righteous will be vindicated by Christ, and the only way that we're righteous is because of Christ. That's Peter's punchline. So whatever he is specifically describing and what exactly Jesus did while he was in the tomb, as it pertains to this passage, is not as important as the idea that Jesus, in the end, vindicates the righteous. This passage is describing for us Jesus as victor and our vindication. Look at what Peter is doing here. In verse 18, he says, Christ suffered for our sins. In verses 19 through 20, Christ went to us and others and freed us from the prison of sin and self that we were in. Just as Noah and his family and animals by two came through the wrath of God on a boat, through Christ we come through the wrath and judgment of God through Christ's 
death. He then ascended. He rose from the dead in the spirit. He ascended and he now sits at the right hand of the father. And verse 22 says that everything in heaven and on earth is now subject to Christ. He owns it all. He stands over it all. He sits at the right hand of the father in a place of authority. That's what Peter is trying to get across to us. So how can we have a living hope in times of trouble? Three reasons. Because Christ is our example, Christ is our substitute, and Christ is our victor. Christ is our example, Christ is our substitute, Christ is our victor. First, Christ as our example. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In Christ, we see an example of how to lead and love and suffer well. He keeps going back. Peter keeps using Jesus as the example. You'll be reviled. He reviled first. You want to lead, lay down your life, just like Jesus did. Jesus is continually the answer and the example. That's why he keeps in in chapter three saying, likewise, likewise, likewise. Remember what Jesus did? That's how we are supposed to lead, love, act when we are troubled. We also see that because Christ suffered, we don't have to be surprised when we suffer either. We're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks. But in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. He suffered first. He was reviled, marginalized, slandered, and then even martyred first. That's why we can stake our life on him. He showed us what suffering looks like. His suffering, his trouble did not stop his obedience. It did not stop his reliance on the Father. And it did not stop Christ's witness to what the Father had done and what he was doing. So first, Christ is our example. Second, Christ is our substitution. Because he's a perfect example, but we're a pretty bad follower. We don't just need an example. We need a substitute. Because the Heavenly Father requires perfection and holiness and righteousness and always doing his will and always suffering well and we just don't. We don't just need Jesus as our example. We need him as our substitute. That's why in tonight's passage, we are told that Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In chapter 2, we read, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ was rejected so that we might be accepted. 
We need the substitute of Christ on our behalf. This is why in verse 21 of chapter 3, as we just read, this baptism, which now corresponds to your salvation, now saves you. It's not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as a removal of sin. When we baptize people here at Grace, we say this is a picture of what Christ did for you. He took your place. You're now identifying with him in your baptism because here's the thing. Baptism is a reenactment of what Christ has done. He identified with us in baptism and we identify with him in our baptism. He always did the will of the Father when we fail to do the will of the Father. He is our righteous life. He is our righteous sacrifice. And he is the risen one who has overcome sin and death. We need a substitute. We don't always suffer well in our comfort and ease. We don't always do the will of the Father. At every turn, we turn and go our own way when left to our own devices. We don't measure up. We don't equal the holiness of God. We need a righteous sacrifice on our behalf, and that's what Christ has offered us. Lastly, Jesus Christ is our victor. He is victorious over sin and death. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, for it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. All of earth and in the spiritual realm, the realm of darkness, when Christ died on the cross, they thought that they had won. Christ rejected, Christ mocked. This man says that he is the king of the Jews. He was mocked with a crown. He was mocked by his death. He was spat on. His clothes were divided up and bet upon. He was reviled at every turn. But in that rejection, in that slander, in that death, he was actually about to claim what was rightfully his. And because he died and because he rose again and because he ascended and because he now stands and, or sits at the right hand of the Father, everything is subject to him. He is the victor over sin and death and all of history. When we are troubled and we feel defeated, when we feel forgotten and forsaken, when we start to question the character and love of our God, we can look to Jesus. That's what Peter is trying to tell us. This is what it means to set our hope fully on him and have a living hope. Jesus suffered, died, laid in a tomb for three days. All thought he was just forgotten. The stranger on the road to Emmaus talked to the men. They said, we had hoped that the Messiah had come. But Christ rose from the grave. And now we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. We are now baptized into his victory. We are now baptized into his righteousness. We now have received everything that we need. So no matter if you're troubled today, 
No matter if you're troubled about the future, no matter if you're troubled about things that have happened in the past, you can have a living hope today because of what Jesus has already done. On the cross, he said, it is finished. That's what we celebrate here tonight. Would you stand with me? Jesus, thank you that you always did the will of the Father. Though reviled, though marginalized, though slandered, though the very ones you came to save put you on a cross, you did the will of the Father. You took our place. You gave us your righteousness. And Jesus, you rose again, you ascended, and now you are sitting on a throne that is rightfully yours, and all things are subjected to you. God, may our lives reflect this. May we live for the good news that we have received and believed, and may we share it generously with others. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his to the God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.